Thank you for tuning in to the Bill Bradley Collective. This episode was recorded on April 5th, 2020, and due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we recorded remotely. We apologize for the audio in this episode. We know Bill Bradley deserves better. This is not up to our standards. Thank you for tuning in to the Bill Bradley Collective, a weekly podcast located at the intersection of sports and politics with your hosts, Andrew, Ed, and Zach. Welcome to the Bill Bradley Collective, another quarantine version where there are no sports going on and we are just eating Doritos and putting on weight. And if you are one of us, deep diving into the career of Bill Bradley. But first, there are other things that are pissing us off. So, Andrew, I'm going to get wait for a moment for you. But, Zach, what's going on? Well, after last week, uh, Dad, when you were talking about Bill Simmons and cancer culture, it got me kind of thinking about other athletes um, and other figures that we've seen that, that, you know, would quote unquote fall under that, that suffered no penalties. Uh, so that's why today I'm going to talk a little bit about John Rocker. John Rocker in 1999 was a closer on the Atlanta Braves. He's in an interview in December and makes a bigoted comment. The comment is quote about playing in New York for either the Yankees, or the Mets. He said, I'd retire first. It's the most hectic nerve wracking city. Imagine having to take the seven train to the ballpark, looking like you're riding through Beirut next to some kid with purple hair, next to some queer with AIDS, right next to some dude who just got out of jail for the fourth time, right next to some 20-year-old mom with four kids. It's depressing. The biggest thing I don't like about New York are the foreigners. You can walk an entire block in Times Square and not hear anybody speak in English. Asians, Koreans, Vietnamese, Indians, and Russians, and Spanish people and everything up there. How the hell did they get in this country? That was in 1999. That resulted in a 14-game suspension by uh, the ever-courageous Bud Selig in sensitivity training. Now, he apologized, but then he continued making bigoted statements throughout his whole career. Anti-gay, he called uh, a a, a Kura Cohen, or or however you pronounce that, uh, teammate Randall Simon, a fat monkey. Um, And this was all in 1999. He then goes... In 1999, by the way, he was making $217,000. His punishment for making these comments, making these bigoted remarks, was to then re-sign with the Braves in 2001, where he made $1.9 million, and then sign with Texas, the Texas Rangers, in 2002, where he made $2.5 million. Now, the only reason he stopped playing wasn't because he was bad, which he, or wasn't because of... Uh, the comments and the bigoted comments and the consistent controversies and just hate he would spew. It was because he stopped being an efficient player. His ERA in 99 uh, was 2.5. He had 38 saves over 74 games. In 2002, where he was making $2.5 million, his ERA was 6.66 with one save in 30 games. That was why they stopped paying him. No one stopped paying him because he was a clear racist bigot. They stopped paying him because he stopped being able to get guys out. He then goes on to write a book where he talks about it's going to be a Republican leaning. It's going to be his, you know, Republican kind of views. Uh, He goes on a Spike TV show, Pros vs. Joes. He goes on Survivor and lasts for, you know, eight weeks until until people finally realize this guy is the biggest asshole in the world, which for Survivor is saying something. And then in 2012, he goes to write a column for the World Daily News, a conservative website, which was probably bringing in thousands upon thousands of hits. Now, I I thought about this because, Dad, you mentioned, you know, Bill Simmons and, and kind of these complaints about cancel culture and happening is this guy paid zero, zero consequences. He didn't pay a he made more money 
post-comments than he did pre-comments. He then also started a speak English campaign to make to, to you know, which is just anti-immigrant. Now, that was where we were in 1999. He got a job with a conservative website. Now, fast forward 16 years and a rich man comes down a golden escalator, gets on TV and says, all Mexicans are rapists and no one bats a fucking eye. We elect him president. The 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 thing about cancel culture is these guys are incentivized to piss people off. They are incentivized to make to make bigoted statements because all they've seen is success come from it. And also not only that is this is who we clearly are as a country. It is who we've clearly been as a country is that these people who say awful things just get rewarded and pay no consequences. Sometimes they go on to make two and a half million dollars and sometimes they go on to become president of the United States. And it is just, you see it, these conservatives just capitalizing on saying the absolute worst thing and making a lot of money off of it. And it's just absolutely absurd how you can look at John Rocker's comments in 1999 and Donald Trump's comments in 2015-16 and go, yeah, it makes complete sense why he's president of the United States right now. It's funny, I, I remember... I vividly remember the story in Sports Illustrated when it was printed in late 1999 and reading it as an 11 year old and being completely aghast at what, at what this was. And this is like, there's this 99, 2000, there's this, the Braves and the Mets have, they meet in the NLCS in 99 and that's, um, it's Rockers second year, it's first year's closer and he's really good and the Braves beat the Mets in the playoffs. Um, so obviously he's, you know, maybe he feels like he's in a position to kind of like, shit on the rival shit on the, the rival city. Um, like that. I, I mean, my, my God, um, reprehensible, everything about him, everything about what he represents, represented represents. I have this theory that like, and I don't think it's my theory, but closers are, are like fucking crazy too. Like in general, release pitchers are just like kind of batshit by nature. Um, obviously rocker is like a piece of shit. But he's also, I think, kind of an opportunist. Um, Zach, you mentioned the in- how it's incentivized to sort of like speak your mind, and, you know, to say these reprehensible things. It's almost the fault of, of who's, uh, Jeff Perlman. Not that it's his fault, but like doing the story on this guy. He's not doing a story on this guy unless he knows he's going to get what he ends up getting, I, I think. Um, so it's like, why give him the forum? I look at now and what I'm saying about closers and, you know, Josh Hader in Milwaukee, uh, who's become one of the best closers in baseball. Uh, he, you know, came to light some Twitter comments he made in 2011, 2012 that are just like kind of similarly reprehensible, homophobic, um, full of slurs. And now in this age, like we don't have to give them the forum, like the forum is there, the forums on social media. You know, in 1999, it's, it's unfortunate that somebody would talk to rocker for like five minutes and think he had anything enlightening or interesting or enriching to say um, when he's just going to spew this kind of bullshit. Um, why would a national outlet give this guy the forum to just spew this fucking bullshit? Um, that's upsetting. <laughs> fucking suck. It's hard to not look at John Rocker and just see like a large part of America who was fine with it and who was fine with him walking around with a shirt that says speak English. It's like a silent, it's the silent, not a silent majority, but like he's enabling people that feel this way. He's empowering people that feel this way. 
just like just like forty six, you know. And I'm sorry, not forty six, forty five. And the um, the thing that that gets that whole era, you know, you talked about the crazy closers. I can't keep Rob Dibble, Mitch Williams, and John Rocker straight in my head. They were the same guy three times. Uh, Dibble was a little bit earlier from Southington, Connecticut, our own. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good area for us with athletes because the uh, same area that uh, Aaron Hernandez came out of. Um, Dibble was completely insane, and now that he went to work for ESPN, I guess because he was in the area. Um, yeah, Rocker was not – the thing about Rocker is his career, his life has kind of gone on as a celebrity. His career was terrible. He had 3.2 wins above replacement in his career, which is about a third of what uh, Dibble had, or half of what Dibble had, and a little bit less than Lee Guterman. And no one has talked about Lee Guterman in 15 years, so I don't understand why we're talking about John Walker. Speaking of Trump, is the Trump acolyte, uh, but uh, best friend Robert Kraft, who has actually done something noble and and uh, you know worth admiring him for, in that he got 1.2 million masks for Massachusetts and another 300,000 for New York, uh, in part because he spent over a million dollars on the inauguration and untold amounts trying to get his friend elected, who can't figure out how to do anything when it comes to this. It makes it hard for me to just bow down and kiss his multiple rings because, A, when you take actions that lead to government collapse and then take our charity that steps in for the government, that's not a good thing. Charity is what happens when civil government fails um, and Kraft made sure it failed. Secondly, uh, it did push the um, Tuggate story out of out of the top of his Google post. Now, if you look up Robert Kraft, it's Robert Kraft Patriots, Robert Kraft Mast, Robert Kraft Wife, and you have to go to the second page for Robert Kraft horrid sex scandal. Um, but I do want to point out someone who's getting much less attention for this. Stefan Marbury has gotten ten million masks, um, but that seems to be an afterthought because he doesn't have his own jet. So. Thank you, Robert Kraft, but you know, this is a this is you're you're paying the devil. Thank you for that shout out to Steph, um, one of my favorite basketball players of all time, and um, a true humanitarian in these times. Um, it's well documented that he that he you know he posted NBA career, went to China, um, and was very successful there. He's kind of like a got this like weird celebrity status. Um, it's good to see he's using that towards you know these really solid means. Back to Kraft. This quote that I came upon is just kind of uh, troubling. Kraft says, quote, I personally have a deep affection for all the citizens of New York City. I just thought it might be cool if the owner of the New England Patriots is doing whatever he can to help Jets and Giants. This is a gift of ours. These 300,000 masks and the transportation to the people of New York. Uh, cool and, and gift kind of... I don't want to say jump off the page. They kind of leap off the page um, and just being very tone deaf. Um, like, thanks Robert Kraft for what you did. But like this, um, there's, I don't find anything cool about it. I don't find, I mean, if you think using your 
abundance your mass resources to, you know, maybe, you know, save some lives that happen to root for the Jets and Giants is a gift. Um, okay, cool. Thank you. But you're still a piece of shit. And I, I kind of believe in, you know, points given when points earned and, and obviously points aren't here and, and, and good, good job by Robert Kraft for, for doing this and stepping up. But, you know, to put that out and be like, well, they, sh-, you know, isn't this a great gift? Like, look how magnanimous I am is, you know, we all believe that if you have the means to do something that you should do it, um, that if you can help, then you should help. And he can help and he is helping. He's doing what he should do. Now, one of the reasons why he has that means is because we have a president who gave him a two and a half trillion dollar tax break that then made him have a lot more money to buy masks. And I am still going to hate the Patriots um, when the season begins. I'm going to hate the Patriots every game. I'm going to root against them every game. But in the offseason, yeah, I hate them about an eighth less now. Yeah, so on a lighter note, um, this weekend, um, the 2020 class inducted into to be inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame was announced. Um, the most notable additions will be Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, and Kevin Garnett. And while I'm gonna, we're going to get into them, I would be remiss not to mention the other inductees. Uh, legendary women's player Tamika Catchings, uh, Kim Mulkey, the active coach of the Baylor women's program, a five-time Division II coach of the year, Barbara Stevens. Don't know anything about you, but congratulations. Eddie Sutton, men's NCAA coach, um, long tenure, Oklahoma State, I think most notably Kentucky. Never won a title. I don't know why he's getting in, but that's neither here nor there. And also former Rockets coach Rudy Tomjanovich, two-time champion as a coach. Good player. Unfortunately, he's more remembered for an incident uh, court incident uh, where he gets decked by Kermit Washington. Again, it's good to hear we're there. But Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett. If you were to ask me, that is uh, essentially three quarters of like my Mount Rushmore for like the NBA in my formative years as like a fan and a viewer. Dirk being the fourth, Dirk Nowitzki. They're, those three are effectively to me like the bridge between like the Jordan James eras. And while there's obviously some overlap when you've got Garnett drafted in 95, Kobe 96, Duncan 97 from so Jordan's first year out of the league is 99 up until 2010, which is, and this is right before LeBron is in every finals of that decade with the exception of one year in 2006. Uh, those one of those three players at least is in every finals and not just in them, but they're on the winning team, on the winning side, between 99 and 2010. To me, it's, it's three of the top, probably two of the top 10, three of the top 20, 25 players of all time in one class. I can't think of like a more, and I'm sure like some of the early baseball classes, like when in the late 30s and uh, early 40s, I'm sure, I'm sure those classes were full of just like top 50 players all the time. But in the modern era, I cannot think of a Hall of Fame class across all four sports that's uh, stronger than this. Um, they, they make me aware of like my mortality. Like I've watched all three of their, like the entirety of their careers. And you know, at 31, they, the fact that they're getting the Hall of Fame now, it's just, I feel fucking old. Um, so if you guys have like any thoughts, I know we, we did a deep dive on Kobe after his tragic death. But any thoughts on any of the three um, or whatever you want to... Yeah. My only thought is obvious... First ballot Hall of Famers, like like you said, Andrew. You know, I we watched. You know, grew up watching these guys play. Um, you know, being a Celtics fan, I I love Kevin Garnett. Uh, you know, a little extra. 
uh, the thing that I think is interesting um, about this, this those three especially, is uh, two of the three were directly out of high school. Uh, Kevin Garnett and Kobe Bryant, both straight out of high school, uh, which you know you can't do now. At LeBron, I believe, is the last one. And I think it just goes to show that, like, if you do one and done, if you come out of high school, the difference over the course of your career might not matter that much. I mean, Garnett and Kobe, their first few years were still obviously just incredibly talented players. I just really enjoy the fact that Andrew started his statements with on a wider note and ended it with, it made me aware of my own mortality. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> g- g- given the state of the world right now that is pretty that is pretty optimistic yeah, for us. Th- those are quarantine thoughts true true, true. quarantine so thoughts we're gonna spend most of our time on another hall of famer uh bill bradley this week i forgot to uh download a funny ad to have on the podcast so i'm gonna push another podcast by a good friend of mine matthew cosgrove stomp clap stomp clap brother he uh, does a podcast that he just started a few weeks ago, just like us, called Two Guys, Same Joke, where uh, two friends get together and they call one of their old friends and they talk about old stories. And uh, probably my favorite segment that they have is they they rate White Claws. And I don't drink White Claw, but it's a hell of a good conversation. So go out there and check it out. It's called Two Guys, Same Joke. You know, throughout this, uh, throughout the quarantine, one of the things that's been great is DJs are putting on these live Facebook live shows. Uh, so that we can all kind of have our own personal dance parties or put it on in the background uh, and have a little connectivity with other people. And one of the DJs uh, that I want to shout out is New London's own uh, Adam Mathiason. His DJ name is Chumzilla. He's won multiple uh, Whaley Awards, the New London uh, Award Show, and he's a great uh, DJ, plays everything from hip-hop to post-disco to pop hits from the 80s. Uh, check out any of his shows and check out his albums over on Spotify. And welcome back to the Bill Bradley Collective. As we said, Bill Bradley's a Hall of Famer, certainly not for what he did in his NBA career, uh, but although he was a fine player, but more for what he did in his college career. So let's talk about that a little bit to start. Bill Bradley grew up rich, and uh, that was viewed as a problem uh, in terms of his basketball because, as they wrote in Atlantic Magazine when he was a junior, he is the only great basketball player to regularly winter in Palm Springs. But he ended up recruited by 70 schools, all offering a scholarship except for the Ivy League schools, which did not. And uh, he went to Princeton anyway because his dream was to be a Rhodes Scholar. In college, he was remarkable. Uh, he was an All-American three times. Uh, his sophomore year, because remember they didn't play as freshmen, he led the team to the um, NCAA tournament for the first time in quite a while. Uh, they got beat in the first round, 82-80, but he had 40. In his second year, um, All-American again, he lost in the second round, this time to UConn. Um, it was the Toby Kimball team. And, Andrew, before you get too cocky, UConn then <laughs> lost 101-54 to to Duke the next round. It was a lean couple of decades after that game. Yeah, yes. His senior year, uh, he was an All-American. He was Player of the Year. Uh, his team made the Final Four. He made the All-Tourney team. As a collegiate, he averaged 30 points and 12 rebounds a game. The NCAA did not keep track of assists back then, but since playmaking was one of his strengths, you assume that that was high, too. And then he entered, then he announced that he was going to be a Rhodes Scholar for two years. And the Knicks 
made one of the most bananas decisions in the history of basketball. And I'm going to talk a few minutes about the NBA draft in 1965 because it seems like something that is so unrelated to everything we know about the NBA now. Hold on, Daddy. You mentioned 12 rebounds, and he averaged 12 rebounds. A year. He was a, a shooting guard, right? Right. That, the, the thing about the 60s, though, is the rebound numbers are always incredibly high because they shot. They had very short possessions. They all just ran all the time, and they were. it was not an efficient offense. So all the rebounding statistics in the 60s you have to take with a grain of salt. Uh, early 70s. I mean, the Nets had three guys that averaged 10 rebounds a game. The NBA had something called territorial picks. This was the last year they did it. You could give up your first-round picker picks. There were only nine teams. If you took a player within 50 miles of your mm-hmm. franchise, who played college 50 miles from the franchise, that happened three times in 1965. The Lakers took Gail Goodrich, the Knicks took Bill Bradley, and the Pistons take, took Bill Bunton, a man I have never heard of. But Bill Bunton played for Michigan. He was the second-best player on the team behind Cassie Russell. He then was he went in the first, you know, as a territorial pick to the Pistons, who played him one year. Their head coach at the time was 22-year-old Dave the Busher. He was a player coach. He was 22. He ended the summary pitch for the White Sox. Um, he averaged, Bunton averaged, uh, you know, 7.7 points, 6.5 rebounds a game. They immediately cut him, even though he was taken before anybody else. And he played minor league for two years, then played in the NFL, and then died playing basketball from a heart attack. It was one of the strangest little sections I've ever read. So then the Knicks were supposed to get two of the top four picks. Bottom two teams each got the first two picks. It was like one and three, two and four. They didn't give up one pick to take Bill Brown. Among the players, they, they turned away. Now remember, he wasn't going to play for two years. They did not take Rick Barry. They did not take Billy Cunningham. They did not take... Uh, Bob Love, who was a multiple-time All-Star, they could have had they could have had Rick Barry. It's hard to know if the Knicks would have been better if they had taken Rick Barry because Willis Reed may have killed him and gone to jail, and that would have been an issue. But they could have had uh, Billy Cunningham was a great player, and Bob Love, and that team would have been incredible. But they took Rick Barry, who then went off for two years. Among the other highlights of, the, of that draft, uh, there was, let's see, Taj Bodhi went in the second round and decided to join the Israeli army instead. So that was interesting. <laughs> um, Probably Ron a better Reed, choice. Ron Reed, he then also joined the American army. This guy liked to be in the army. Ron Reed, the pitcher who won, who was the winning pitcher in Henry uh, Hank Aaron's 715th home run game, and he was 145 and 140 in the major leagues. He went in that round, in that draft, and actually played there um, that year. So it was a very interesting draft, and it seems like nothing that anybody had ever done would ever be done again. Um, 
they had, because the Knicks gave up their pick, the San Francisco Warriors had the official first two picks. They picked Barry second. They picked Trent Hurtful first, who had slightly worse statistics than Bill Bunton, but somehow was on the NBA all-rookie team with Cunningham, Barry, and the identical Van Arsdale twins. Van Arsdale twins were identical twins who went in consecutive picks in the second round. By the way, there were 17 rounds in the draft back then. More players were drafted than more than twice as many players were drafted in 1965 that were drafted in 2019. So that's everything you need to know about the NBA draft and Bill Bradley's uh, part of it. You know, by the way, one thing to mention, uh, he was also an Olympic gold medalist in, in Tokyo in 1964. Um, pretty oh, impressive. That's right. He he beat the, uh, they beat the Soviet Union. He was the original uh, miracle on tile, I guess. <laughs> on hardcore, miracle on hardcore. Yeah, he, um, oh, his college career was extraordinary. Um, I mean, Princeton made the final four. You don't really need to say much more than that. One of, I mean, one of the great amateur collegiate athletes of all time, unquestionably. Sorry. No, Andrew, I, Andrew, I think, uh, you know, that leads perfectly into, you know, you being the uh, uh, the the standard Knicks fan of the group uh, for some reason, the, although it does, the resident, seem, uh, yeah, although it does seem like James Dolan was still calling the shots back in the 60s. Um, but I know, uh, you know, you, you read a lot about his uh, his Knicks tenure. It gets better. It gets better post 65, 66. Okay. So briefly to get back to, uh, to, to his collegiate career. So his coach, Bradley's coach at Princeton. Okay. Correct. What is, he gets the job and in Bradley's freshman year, what does he do? What, what, what does Bradley get him after Bradley leaves, goes to the NBA? The Laker job. The Los Angeles Lakers job. Bill Bradley, in my mind, single-handedly gets uh, Bredikoff to go from Princeton to the Los Angeles Lakers, who were in the finals every year in the 60s, losing to the Celtics every year. And they're going to lose to a, a, another certain team in the 70s a couple of times that we'll, we'll get to. Um, Bill Bradley accelerates <laughs> this guy's uh, coaching career. Um, he's got Bradley for, four year, or for three years at the varsity level, and then Bradley goes and he leaves, goes to the Lakers, Loses Celtics twice, <clears throat> and he's back to toiling in obscurity. Coached a bunch of teams. Yes, so he did. did. And so did his kid. Like was Scott Van, his son coached too. Yes, he did. It sounds like Bill Bradley's the villain in your story. <laughs> you got the, in, my, in my story, yeah, you, got, you got the Lakers a bunch of championships for the coach. Meanwhile, he went to toil in New York, and he, he, didn't, he didn't get the Lakers shit. Like that's the thing. Like, he doesn't get the Lakers shit. He goes there. He leaves Princeton. Bradley leaves, so he's like, "All right, Bradley makes me look like a million bucks, okay?" And he gets the Laker job because he's like, "I Bradley's gone. Like, I'm not going to win shit at Princeton." Lakers hire him. I believe he coaches the Lakers in '68 and '69 against like the last. And the Celtics like are great throughout most of the '70s, at least the like first half. And they lose the Celtics twice, and then the Lakers are like, "Hey, get the fuck out of here." The Lakers end up sort of being. Bill Bradley's professional, I would say, like villain. Um, Bill Bradley's pro career. Okay, so let's quickly just run it down. It's not spectacular. Okay, gets drafted in '65, doesn't actually show up for the Knicks until '68, and it's a rough, it's a rough marriage that first season. The Knicks aren't good. He's not terribly good. Okay, 
by the time we get to 6970, um, the Knicks have amassed this, and this is going to be sort of like the story of Bradley's pro career. Okay. The Knicks have Willis Reed, Hall of Fame, first ballot. Walt Clyde Frazier, Hall of Fame, first ballot. Dave DeBusher, Hall of Fame, first ballot, as Ed mentioned, Dave DeBusher. Dave DeBusher also, kind of trivia, like basically Bradley's best friend in basketball, his road roommate. The Knicks, by Bradley's third season in 70, they get to the finals and they, and they beat the Lakers. And Von Bredikoff is gone by this point. But it's like the most famous, it's like one of the most famous like NBA final series of all time. It's, um, it's the first that's carried on like network television live in prime time in history, 1970 ABC. It's the Willis Reed game seven where he's got, he's, his, he tears his groin. He comes out in game seven, inspires the, he, he makes some plays early, inspires the Knicks. They get out to this huge lead by the time he leaves. Cause he can't fucking walk anymore. The Knicks have a 24 point lead. Frazier, Bill Bradley, bring it home and they win. Okay. And in doing research for this and having watched actually that game seven, there's a thing where in the post game scrum in the Knicks, in the Knicks locker room. Okay. In 1970, it's a far cry from like the post game celebrations of how we know them now with the champagne and the madness and these, it's weird. It's much more subdued in 1970. Howard Cosell is the, is the interviewer for ABC sports in 1970. Game ends. Knicks world champions, 1970, first in the franchise history, first title. The first person they talk to in the locker room is Bill Bradley. The first person that Cosell interviews, asks him about Willis Reed, his parade, you know, what he gave the team. He gives us very well, this eloquent, well thought out, like Willis. We won it for him. He came out there, probably should have been out there. Probably wouldn't have played if it was 2019, 2020. Comes out there, inspires, galvanizes mm-hmm. the team. And Bradley and Bradley articulates this so well. He's, and again, he's the first person that Cosell interviews in this like post game uh, celebration scrum. Quickly, they win another title in '73. They should have won in '72. The Knicks of the early '70s, it's a potential dynasty. And Bill Bradley is the fourth best player on those teams. Okay, he is. '73. The, it's the one season in his 12-year career where he's an all-star, okay? He leads the Knicks in scoring, leads the Knicks in scoring in, in, in the finals, okay? Uh, they, they finished the Lakers in five games. And in 73, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to harken back to, like, ABC's production of, like, that, of the deciding game, where in the locker room, the scene, it's Willis Reed is the MVP again. Bill Russell's in the locker room, okay? And he's talking to Reed. And who's he looking for after talks to Reed? He's like, let me bring let me bring Bill Bradley in here. Let me get Bill Bradley in here. Bill Bradley, he ends up being a first ballot Hall of Famer. He goes in the same year as Dave DeBusher, like I said, his best friend in basketball, his road roommate. They go into the same class. Bill Bradley is never better than the fourth, I guess, I don't want to say best, but most accomplished, most achieved player on those teams that had the potential to be a sort of dynasty. In 73, there are six Hall of Famers on seven, that roster. Seven if you count Phil Jackson. If you count Phil Jackson, it goes in, it goes in as a coach. Seven, Phil Jackson. By 73, oh, the guys I mentioned before, Frazier, Reed, Busher, Bradley, they bring in Jerry Lucas, they bring in Earl, the Pro Monroe. Seven Hall of Famers. Reed is the MVP of that series. 
Who's the leading scorer in the series for the Knicks? It's Bill Bradley. He averaged 18.6 in that series. And 26 in the second game after they came off the walk. He was huge. He was huge. huge. So the Knicks, the, you know, the preeminent team of the early 70s, uh, the first half of that decade. And Bill Bradley is, is the fourth best player on that team. There is a book, uh, Breaks of the Game, uh, David Halberstam, that comes out in the early 80s. It's pretty. It's a pretty seminal book in like the history of books on sports, like narrative sort of nonfiction sports books. Um, it's a season inside the Portland Trailblazers in the early '80s. There is a conversation that Halberstam documents between the coach and the GM and their scouts, and they're they're looking back in the past, and this is like 1980, 1981, and they say it's like a players I w- I would pay to see. That's what the game is. They're just like reminiscing. It's a really, it's an insightful passage. It's a look into how basketball people in 1980 looked at the past. Okay. Bill Russell's name comes up. Oscar Robertson, Jerry West. Eck Ramsey, Dr. Jack Ramsey, the coach of the Blazers at the time. The fourth name that comes up in this conversation, and this is, we're talking about the fourth best player on these title teams. Okay. Mentions is Bradley. Quote, Bradley, he made that Nick team go, referring to that 70... 71, 72, 73 vintage Nick team. Bradley made that Nick team go. The smartest player on it. Saw everything before it happened. I'd pay to see him. Commanded the respect of his peers and of the coaches. And just, I would dare say like an underrated career because the numbers and the accolades as a professional aren't, don't really like suit that of like a Hall of Famer. He's in the Hall of Fame largely on his amateur credentials. His professional career is nothing to sniff at. I mean, that was my, one of my favorite teams growing up. Uh, I remember that team really well. And I was actually surprised when I looked at some statistics that, like, in that 72-73 season, he had the second most total points on the team, and he was second in assists. You know, he, he had average four and a half assists a game, which was a lot for a forward back then. That team had so many guys, and they just fell off the planet all at once. But that team of, I remember just being a huge Hawthorne Wingo fan. It was so excited when Hawthorne Wingo came into the game. Before. And, and Bill, by the way, Bill Jackson was a nasty player. And the other thing that, that about Bill Bradley you forget, or I didn't you know, forget it, I didn't know it. He was always in the top 20 and fouls committed because he was so slow, he just grabbed guys going by him. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, he was. Billy Cunningham would have been a better fit on that team, and I think to say that he made the team go, I'm not going to argue with Dr. Jack Ramsey, but like Walt Frazier was really good. Yeah, really it's, good. It's before, funny. before we get into his third act, I do have a, a, a piece of trivia for each of you, or for, for both of you that I just found. Uh, when he was in his Rhodes Scholar, he won a EuroLeague championship playing over in Italy. He is one of only two players ever in basketball to have won a EuroLeague title, an NBA championship, and an Olympic gold medal. Who is the other player? And as a hint, he has retired in the last five years. Manu Ginobili. God damn it. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> That's, yeah. Great there. question. He didn't play there long enough. No, he was 19 when he came over. The, the other one that it could have been is the bonus, the, the original for bonus. Yeah. Because, but I don't think he won an NBA title. 
No, because the Blazers, the best team, they 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 blow the lead in Game Seven in two thousand West Conference Finals. Right. That was the year. I think he would have been, although they probably never won it. Get who won the titles like in seventy six or in eighty when we weren't there. Yeah, um, I don't know who won those titles. Yeah, not only was he a great college player and and was he a great member of the Knicks, but he had a third act, and his third act actually came extremely young. After he retired, he took a couple years off. And then in 1978, when he was only 35 years old, he was elected to the United States Senate out of New Jersey. Uh, He had been campaigning for many New Jersey candidates, many Democrats, uh, and had decided it was finally time to run. One of the reasons why he ran, uh, and this is from a a New York Times article in 1978, uh, which shows the amount of research we did for this podcast, a player by the name of Morris a congressman who was a former professional basketball player in the National Basketball League in the 40s, Morris Udall from Arizona, uh, was the one who kind of pushed and told Bill Bradley how his sports and how being a leader on a team could prepare him for a life in Congress, uh, which he followed up on. And, and it's actually something that he was criticized a lot about in Congress because uh, uh, in the Senate especially – uh, they tend to defer to each other as in this congenial way, and he was more like, I'm leading, I want to take the charge. But he gets elected in 1978. Now, he was going to run against a very liberal Republican. Uh, you know, some, some may say a dying breed or a dead breed, since if you could find me one liberal Republican right now, I'd give you $1,000. Um, he was going to run against a liberal Republican who actually lost in a primary to a far-right conservative. Uh, and Bradley was able to beat the far right conservative and become uh, a senator. Now, uh, the, the Washington Post does a great retrospective on on his entire life and, and all of his achievements. And one of the things they talk about was that in 1978, there were not a lot of women, let alone holding seats in Congress, but being involved in politics at a national level. And one of his first hires was a chief of staff, was a female chief of staff who worked as like an associate lawyer for the New York City Council, uh, someone who had no experience, but who he could trust. And he put a woman as his chief of staff, which in 19, it would be rare now, but in 1978, years, decades ahead of his time. Uh, but he was also kind of, he wasn't known for taking a lot of uh, the, you know, you vote for this, I vote for that kind of votes. He was more interested in kind of being a policy wonk, uh, which, you know, f- me personally, and I, I, I don't know if you guys agree, but I think we need more of. Uh, I think we need people who are more interested in in uh, in the bills and what they do. Dad, I know you were Elizabeth Warren supporter. I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. I think both of them fit that mold. Uh, but especially in the Elizabeth Warren mold, one of the things he was interested in was not the day-to-day. But he wanted to focus on kind of large structural reforms uh, he could get done and would spend years upon years on them. I mean, one of the, one of these structural reforms was to take on the water barons in California. Now, he's a senator from New Jersey. Of course, this helped him run for president. Um, but that was kind of the guy he was in Congress. The problem was he never really took overly overly risky stances. He 
what he did, he was great on. He he seemed to always kind of want to master any policy. I, I, he said um, there was a quote about him in tax policy where he said tax policy is the only thing you can come close to mastering. It's not like asking, you know, what is God or something, it, which I think harkens back to him being a Rhodes Scholar. It also harkens back to the way he played basketball. If he'd always want to be the best and prepare to be a master at a certain position because of that, that kind of hurt him much like, you know, the modern day Bernie Sanders. He actually wanted to do things, whereas everyone else just kind of wanted to get through the day. One of the things he would do is he would file progressive amendment after progressive amendment after progressive amendment in hearings that would always be voted down 18 to 2. And one of the reasons why he he talks about he's he did this is because he said, I wanted to talk about what we could be, not what we are, uh, which is an incredibly aspirational um, view as a senator and, and is also completely against the way the Senate works. The Senate doesn't talk without saying my friend, even if they hate each other. Uh, so he was kind of pushing back. And, and one of the things he talked about that, that would irritate him is kind of the, the old boys club feel of the Senate. Like, well, we made it. You know, we're one of the hundred most powerful people in the country. Now we just have to stay in power. And he actually wanted to change things. Uh, one of the things he did uh, was under Reagan. He helped, he helped overall the tax code. Now, I'm not a Reagan fan. I don't think Reagan did anything good. But what Bill Bradley was able to get was he was able to reduce the remove the deductions from a lot from from the taxes which the super wealthy would use. And in a Times and a Washington Post article, they talk about this that the way he found out about that was his agent told him how to hide money when he was a player. And he went to the Senate to change that and to make that better and to and to remove that exemption. Uh, by the way, all of that progress he made under Reagan uh, was then repealed in in 1996 by former President Bill Clinton. But he spent many years in Congress up, up until 1990. He had a very tough uh, reelection campaign against future New, New Jersey Governor Christy Todd Whitman. I literally only know because my wife is from New Jersey. He outspent her eight to one in this race, and he won by 3%. And a lot of it was because he refused to talk about if the state should implement an income tax. And he had also supported uh, merit-based pay for teachers. Which, NJEA. Yeah, the NJEA disliked him. I, I think this is also one of those things of, I mean, Christy Todd Whitman is, is a far-right conservative. It damaged him, and it, it damaged his national uh, kind of profile. But what he, what he did after that was he decided to become kind of a moral leader in the Senate. And, and in the Washington Post and the New York Times article, they talk about this, that he said, I don't want to be a voice just for New Jersey. I want to be a more I want to be moral leadership. He, he particularly took uh, issue with George Bush's 1991 civil rights bill, saying that it was basically just turning back the clock, that 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 white people need to understand their privilege. Now, this is 20, 30 years before this became uh, common in conversation. And then he he decides to not run again in the 96 election. Uh, and when he decides not to run again, he also, on his way out, just lambasts, absolutely digs into both parties, the system saying, the system is broken, these parties don't serve the people. Like, just looking back at it now, a 100% accurate description of our political system and how our federal government responds to the people. But he uses this, and he takes a couple of years off, and then he decides to run for president in 2000 after Bill Clinton. One of the things uh, 
he used in that run was he ran to the left of Al Gore uh, on a couple issues, especially the 96 uh, welfare deform by Bill Clinton uh, that he pushed, that he signed with the help of Newt Gingrich. Bill Bradley voted against it. He talked about how that was horrible, that that hurt uh, poor and, and lower class people, especially people uh, that might be single single parents. He also voted against, he also talks about this because he voted against the 1991 uh, authorization of the use of force against Saddam Hussein in the first Iraq war. Uh, some may say that's a bad vote. I would say that's a good vote. I would argue that the less we, that that action by our military and by our government led to what a lot of the problems we have now. And Bill Bradley voted against that. And I think that that is, to have the foresight uh, to do that is, is an incredibly courageous, but also I think speaks to his intelligence that he, not only a road scholar, but able to kind of see where the world was going. But when he ran in 2000, it was not the first time he, he had been asked to run. In 1988, actually, uh, he was recruited to run against the first Bush because there was no clear uh, nominee that because the primary was such a mess that they were kind of hoping Bill Bradley would come in at the last second and kind of be that convention guy, that they they root, vote for him at the convention, even though he didn't take part in the primary. Uh, thankfully, he turned that down as, as that, you know, we saw how that works in 68, 72, et cetera. If you know anything about democratic politics, uh, you know our history with picking people that are not known and what that results in, uh, Richard Nixon especially with his 49 to one reelection. In his 2000 run, I think it's safe to say Bill Bradley was a progressive, and he is a progressive, but he also kind of had a more moderate bend. One of the things he talked about was expanding healthcare coverage uh, and, and allowing for universal coverage. His language versus Gore's language, which I think is something in 2020 that we notice is Gore was talking about access to healthcare. Bradley was talking about healthcare coverage uh, because, you know, we've seen Bernie yell about this all the time. It doesn't matter if you have access, if you can't fucking pay for it. Who gives a shit if you have access to $700 a month healthcare if you can't pay for it? That was what Gore was talking about. Bradley was talking about kind of covering everyone. He wanted a federally paid mandated insurance for every child that was born, which would mean parents that, that have a child that is sick, that often go bankrupt, that child will be covered by the federal government. That is decades ahead of its time, decades. He also wanted complete prescription drug coverage for seniors. So he was basically taking the costliest parts of healthcare and saying the federal government will take care of it. And everyone else, you guys can still have employer-sponsored healthcare. I'm personally against employer-sponsored healthcare. I believe that it, it shouldn't matter if you are if you have a job for healthcare. I think COVID-19 is, is a perfect example of why that's a shitty system. Uh, because if you lose your job, you lose your healthcare. Um, but then on the flip side of that, he also wanted to do things like eliminate uh, Medicaid and CHIP and make it a federal plan, not a state plan, which is, which is, some may say a progressive position, some may say a more moderate position. Dad, you, 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 were, the, you were the one who was more, you were a voting age in this election, let me put it that way. Uh, so, so you may, may view it differently. Uh, but, but he also ran on publicly funded campaigns uh, years before Citizens United, years before McCutcheon, uh, which, not to get too too nerdy, but McCutcheon is actually the problem with our political system, not the Citizens United decision. The Citizens United decision wouldn't happen without McCutcheon. And he wanted federally funded campaigns. He also wanted to hire 60,000 more teachers, put them into inner cities, put them into the districts that need teachers the most. 
the problem was his campaign was overshadowed uh, in many ways by another kind of upstart senator uh, who ran a very grassroots, surprising campaign, and that was John McCain in 2000. Uh, and I do want to point out that John McCain in 2000, if you go back and look at any video in jo of John McCain in 2000, the John McCain in 2000, so different than the John McCain in 2008, who is so different than the John McCain in 2018. So this is not a plus to the 2018 John McCain, because uh, John McCain in 2000, I might not have voted for, but I certainly wouldn't have disliked. He actually was a maverick. But then he went on, because he was the only one. It was much like this election where there's two candidates. He lost Iowa 2-1, to one, which badly hurt his campaign. And then he lost New Hampshire by 4%. And then he went on to lose every Super Tuesday state after that um, by fairly significant margins. The, that, that Super Tuesday was on March 7th. Uh, Connecticut was part of it. Uh, he lost Connecticut by 14%. Uh, he ended up dropping out then two days later. Uh, was rumored to be a vice presidential nominee, definitely said he wanted to keep the issues and, and talking about the issues forefront. And I think that if you look at Bill Bradley as a politician, while not perfect, as no politician is, I think is was and, and, and dad, perhaps you could speak to this a little a little more since you remember the campaign, but seems in many ways to have been decades ahead of where we are now, that a lot of the things he was talking about in 2000 are things we are now viewing as problems we should have solved 20 years ago. Things like campaign finance, things like healthcare coverage, things like lack of teachers, things like prescription drug costs. He had a very, very, I would argue, and of course I'm, I'm more of a political fan than a Knicks fan um, or, or college basketball fan. I would argue that his political career did a significant amount towards moving the ball forward and ensuring a better world than many of the other things he did. I, I, he's an incredibly impressive man. I think his basketball career is incredible. But I remember, you know, being being 10, 11 years old, watching Bill Bradley's speeches and debates and thinking like, oh, wow, this guy is this guy is the one I'd want to be president. And this is the person I'd want to live under. Fortunately, he, you know, Al Gore beat him and then went on to lose to uh, George Bush in the what do they call it? The, the hanging chads. You kind of think and you wonder, you know, what would the world be like if Bill Bradley had beaten Gore? He wouldn't have had any of the baggage that Gore had because Bush tied him with Clinton uh, as if they were twins. And if we would have looked at if Bradley wins in 2000, are we looking at a very different world? Does Trump not exist? Does Obama not? Does Obama not become president? <clears throat> But what does the world look like? And I look at his I look at his political career, and that's kind of what I take out of it is for all the things he did that I I, I look at and I go, ah, I disagree with now. That was thirty years ago. As a collegian at Princeton, as a member of the '64 Olympic team, as a member of the New York Knicks, as a member of the U.S. Senate, as a candidate for U.S. for, for president, this is a guy. There, there's one constant, okay, and it's it's selfless in selfish times. It's Absolutely. Being, when it's convenient to be an opportunist, he's not. It's about the greater good. That's the reflection of his whole career in basketball and politics. Yeah, one of the things that I remember from that campaign, because I was, I was a big Bradley supporter. Uh, I was not a Gore fan. Bradley talked about the fact that he was the only person in, this, who, in the Senate 
who had gone to a workplace in which he was a minority by race. When you think about it, that's a hundred percent true. Yeah. He knew more black people than any other senator because he played basketball. And I think that informed him. Zach, you mentioned Udall, who was an early, I was a big Udall fan early on, who was a, a liberal Democrat from Utah. Um, and he reminds me of Udall a, a little bit. One of the problems he had on the campaign trail, Spence, especially when McCain was there, who had so much charisma, is Bradley had less charisma you know, on television than Gore did, which is a pretty low standard. You know, his liberal bona fide, you look at who who was supporting him for president, Paul Wellstone, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, Lowell Weicker, Wario Cuomo. These were my political heroes growing up because they were in both parties, but they were smart, policy-driven liberals. And they supported him. He wasn't great on education. He could be a bit patrician. But, you know, his tax code plans, which, you know, he took the idea of simplifying the tax code, which was a big issue at the time, and made it a progressive idea, not a conservative idea. It was very impressive policy work. You know, I remember voting for him in the primary uh, there was no shot that he was going to win. It was pretty clear. Um, it was one of those things like we saw at this time where people just said, you know what, let's settle around what we know. Uh, that happened. But I thought that he did push Gore left quite a bit. And I think it would have been a very interesting president. He got knocked in New Jersey for customer, like for constituent services. He just really didn't do much of it. He didn't do a lot of campaigning. He didn't really like the politics part of politics and kind of thought he was above that. Much like um, Bernie. Bernie's a natural politician. That's like true. Bernie's Maybe more like Warren. People. He doesn't necessarily. There's a certain necessity in this era versus years ago. He's much more. Uh, I, I, it's really hard to think of someone who's like that now. Well, it's like, you know, come on, you know I'm the best kid. Hey, just give it to me and let's move on. He is the perfect intersection of, of sports and politics. That's why we call this the Bill Bradley Collective. He is one of the very few former athletes who's a liberal. Most of the former athletes are very, who have gotten into politics are quite conservative. Bill Bradley, uh-huh. not a conservative, and uh, it gives us hope moving forward that and that's why we named the podcast after. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe. We'll see you all next week. Bye.